Uh, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we just thank you. We want to we want to always just weave thanksgiving into our prayers. We want to remember that you're a good God, that you're a God of love, that you're a relational God that stooped down and and has found us and is is reaching us and is talking to us and wants a relationship with us. And Father, we just want to thank you. We want to thank you for the good stuff. We want to commit the, the stuff that's tough to you. We want to take ownership of that stuff that we mess up. Um, but what you're doing, I just... I hope we get to see the good and that we get to affirm that your idea for church, your local church, was a good idea, is a good idea. We commit that in Christ. So I'm going to give you my best shot at a Christmas sermon. And, uh, and then in the first week of January, we start back up in John talking about heaven for like two weeks. Um, so jump right into the thick of it. So, uh, But this is kind of my, my shot at a Christmas sermon. So if you'll turn to Matthew... Uh, the beginning of the, the Gospel of Matthew, we kind of saw it in the play. I mean, it reads a little different here. Um, not not that much different. Just if I could speak in the Italian accent, it'd be all, almost the same. Um, but this is chapter 2 of Matthew, so if, if you'll turn there, we'll kind of pick up the Christmas story. And it reads this way. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Beth, this is a direct quote, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it was stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed, and on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and with, of incense and of myrrh. I don't know if you're a parent, and kids are asking you, like, what's myrrh and incense? Like, I don't know how to answer that either, just so you know. They brought diamonds and cool stuff and arcade games. And, um, gold and incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. That little chunk that I just read you starts and ends with this guy named King Herod. And King Herod here, this is King Herod the Great. Um, the guy basically was a, a big dude in the the time 30 years or so leading up to Christ and what had basically happened was the Romans had come in and they now kind of ruled this area and there's people that kind of um, managed it and kind of were in some sense local kings and all that and and the Romans kind of worked through the structures on the ground and this guy Herod was kind of vying for this 
and his nephew kind of booted him out and took the title king of the Jews. And Herod ran to Rome. This Herod did, Herod the Great. Ran to Rome. And this was in the time of when both uh, Antony and... Um, Augustus, ah, uh, boy. Freshened up. So this is uh, Antony and... All right, well, the other dude that shared rule with, there's there's like two of them and they're sharing rule in Rome, okay? So he goes back and the Senate is still going there and it's before Caesar Augustus. This guy, I think it was Octavius, becomes Augustus. Um, but but Augustus uh, is basically part half ruler and all this and it's before he kind of takes over the whole thing because he ends up killing Antony and Cleopatra. Sound familiar? Because Anthony's kind of ruling the lower part down there in Egypt, and he and Cleopatra become kind of buds, and Antony gets too big for his britches, and then he gets killed. Now it's consolidated rule, and it's the one dude, and then you begin to see like the real Caesar thing happening, where like it's a dictatorship, right? But at this point, it's the two two guys, and and so Herod goes and and he pitches his case, and the Senate's there, and the Senate still makes these decisions, and they say, nope, we're going to name you Herod, king of the Jews. Uh, we're going to put you in charge. You can kind of take our armies and go back. And it took three years fighting his nephew, um, gets rid of his nephew, and now he becomes officially, through the Roman Empire, king of the Jews. Which is really interesting because he's uh, from a line that's not an original Jewish line. About 100 years earlier, a group of people were kind of forced to become uh, Jews, kind of forced to convert or kind of become that. And he's kind of from that line, never really seen as a kind of a full Jew guy. That didn't sound right. Like, um, you know what I mean, though? Like, fully in that culture, geez. And, and so Herod's here, and he's king of the Jews. Uh, in, in Greek, um, Basileos Judeu, uh, king of the Jews. It's a big deal. That's a, that's a big title officially decreed on him by the Romans. He is king of the Jews. And now he rules that area for a long time and he build goes into these massive building programs which in those days like cements your legacy so it's i'm the guy i'm all about my grandeur i'm all about ruling and i'm gonna take all these people organize it for them to in a sense build my pyramids make me look great okay uh and, and they're gonna all build these things in my lifetime because it's gonna make me a great um king it's gonna give me a legacy this is King Herod the Great. It's one of the reasons he's called the Great. All those great projects he undertook. So this is that guy. Now, he usurped or, or kicked out his family member who had the title, and then he gets the title. So he's not a very secure guy. So he actually has his, one of his wives and kids killed at some point in time because his whole life is one of intrigue and and just like the back and forth and the paranoia, right? I mean, I did it. What's going to stop somebody else from going and building an alliance and coming and, and kicking me out? And so he lives like this, always worried of the next political reality that's going to come in and threaten his reign, his rule as king of the Jews. So he's on his throne. And these guys dressed in fine duds, these wise men, these, these hot shots, these wealthy guys, these, these rulers from the east, these, these fancy people come into his court and they come up to him and they ask this, where is the one who has been born 
king of the Jews. How would you hear that if you were here? What? Okay, uh, king of the Jews, been here before. Um, I need to know who you're talking about. I need to know uh, where he is. And I need to know uh, what his political affiliation is. Um, does he have an army yet? You know, like who's backing him? You know, what's the play here? Um, but I'm gonna, I, yeah, I, I'm not gonna just not act. I'm king of the Jews. So Herod goes into his political mode and tries to find these things out. And then we read later, basically, that when the Jews, uh, when the, the Magi, I'm sorry, don't come back to him, he orders that all the kids from two, all the boys from two down, be killed. I can't, I, I, these guys never came back, so they can't point out, we don't have DNA, fingerprints. I can't figure out exactly which kid it is. So I'm going to send in my soldiers. We're just going to wipe out two-year-old and down. It's real simple. I mean, I'll kill my own kid. I have no problem killing. We're talking 20 to 30, you know, maybe like uh, 40 to 50 if you take the surrounding area. Boys under the age of two. Tiny little area of Bethlehem here, okay? So it's not like maybe the movies where you're seeing like thousands of kids being killed. But So he has no problem. I kill my own son. I don't have no problem with a couple dozen peasant families and their kids. No problem. I'm just going to wipe them out. Well, Jesus is, you know, God takes care of Jesus. And before this happens, they obviously kind of flee for their lives. Um, but this is Herod. This is Herod. There's a side to this Christmas story that's very, very political that we miss when we, when we do the nativity scenes and we and we, we sing some of the songs and whatnot. And it all has to do with that little phrase, King of the Jews. Um, it also has to do with the fact that this is the Son of God. And you see what is implied in all this through the word worship. Magi are saying, tell us where this guy is, because we're going to go worship him. I mean... Worship was this. It was, it was the word prostrate. It was, it was prostrating yourself on the ground, this act of humiliation and bowing down and worshiping and basically exalting the person that you're worshiping, that, that this person is worthy of being exalted. This person is dominant, and I am subservient to that. And, and these magi said, tell us where he's at. We're going to go worship him. Herod says, when you find out, you come tell me so that I can go worship him. Herod says these words, but, but actually intends to do what? What's the opposite of worship? We could throw out a bunch of things. Destroy. Um, uh, instead, of, instead of serving, dominating. Instead of asking, Lord, what is your will? It'd be, it'd be controlling and manipulating and making small. Instead of saying this person is exalted, it's like, no, this person is a threat and I have to remove this person, kill this person so that my own exalted status can, can remain. I mean, what is the opposite of worship? I don't know. But that's what Herod had in mind. So you see these two opposing things when there is this person here king of the Jews, that, that either there's this one road, which is worship, 
Or this, there's this King Herod road over here, which has to deal with the political reality of this individual. If you're not going to be subservient, then you have to deal with the threat of the person. You either do the actions and honor that person, or you have to remove the person. I mean, is that logic? I mean, I'm saying it a little funny, but does that logic come through to you? You either choose to accept that reality, or you deny the reality and have to, to do something with it and change it. If you're not going to be changed, the circumstances have to be changed. I can't, I can't say it any more clearly. So the Christmas story, as we look at it, involves this political reality. Now, we don't take that on that often because we don't have kings. And Herod certainly isn't our king, and we don't think of ourselves as kings. So we just, we treat it like a kid's storybook. You know, there's the princess, there's the king, there's the queen, whatever. Oh, and there's the other person, and we read it dispassionately as a story going on out here, and it doesn't quite hit close to home for us. But it does. It would be like Jesus showing up in America, and Obama has a choice to not be the ruler anymore and hand that over to Jesus. What are the political implications of that? And what about all of Obama's backers? And what about the Democratic Party? And what about the people that are constitutional lawyers? And what about the, I mean, that's a huge state of affairs that has to be changed for authority to be handed over to somebody. That's, that's Obama's decision. And in today's day and age, if Jesus came and said, give me, give me control, I'm, I'm rightfully the ruler, we now have a decision. Hey, now. Um, that doesn't fit the Constitution. You didn't win a popularly, popularly elected uh, you know, election. You didn't go through the process. Hey, now, I'm not going to follow that. I'm not going to let you replace what is the, the system in my country. Like, we have a choice of what we're going to do, right? I mean, would you, I mean it, can you imagine, like, um, Katie Couric? How, how in the world would she report that? But it would, it would destabilize all of our fabric of society. This is the reality of Christmas. And we read it like a, a kid's book. We read it like a kid's book. Um, Jesus is not king just for Herod. Jesus is also king for us. Um, he's the Son of God. He's the ruler. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. He comes into this world um, like a true ruler should in, in the picture of humility. Because power and authority should always be, God makes it clear, always, the shepherds always are supposed to use that influence to help the weak. So Jesus gives us this beautiful picture of what power should be wrapped up in. But, but he comes, make no mistake about it, with power and with authority. And so Jesus, this baby that's born, and the interesting thing about kingship and, and some of those things that we're not familiar with, but our British brothers and sisters might be or whatnot, is royalty like that is something you're born into. We don't have that category, do we? I mean, you got to be 35 years old, been born in the States, you got to go through these elections, and then you become like a ruling person, then we strip it from you after a term or two. You know, that's ruling in our country. 
when there's royalty, it's like you're born into it. David was anointed king long before he ever took the throne from Saul. You guys remember that story? He gets anointed, and then he runs for his life for all these years, and then he becomes king. So royalty is this different concept. Jesus is born king. Born king. Uh, wow. Okay. There's implications to that. What God is doing here is not something that we can play spectator on. It's our actual story. It's our actual lives. It's where we're at. So if you turn ahead with me to um, to chapter uh, 8 of Matthew. When we begin to understand this, we, we, it makes so much more sense how the story in Matthew unfolds. Uh, the way Jesus called people to follow him, the kinds of things he said, the the way he felt about people begins to make a lot of sense. The fact that he really showed no respect for the temple, Herod's temple that Herod built for God, that Jesus never really like is in awe of it the way other people in his day are. <laughs> Jesus is like, whatever. This temple doesn't matter. God matters. What God is doing matters. Destroy this temple, I could care less. I'll show you how it can be built again in three days because my body, I'm the temple. This is where God is dwelling. You know, and so you begin to understand Jesus' vibe for the whole thing. But in, in chapter 8 here, verse 18, it's uh, subtitled, if, if you look at it there, it's subtitled, The Cost of Following Jesus. And, and this is how it reads. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Will you really follow me? I mean, because if you're going to follow me, you got to go where I go. And this is what my reality is. Is that really what you want? Do you want all of that? Um, and then it continues. And another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, this is probably a little bit idiomatic, let the dead bury their own dead, or i got to go bury my father. It's not that his father's dead and he's hanging out over here with Jesus and like, oh, yeah, let me go run back and, and finish up today's ceremony and then come back. Like What he's probably saying is, I'm the eldest son or, or you know, let my father pass away and then I become, in some sense, the head of the house. And then I'll come, this is the decision I'll make to come follow you. So let me go finish up basically where my life status is at and see that through, and then I have no problems coming and getting on board with kind of your plan or what you're doing. That's probably a little bit of what's going on there. So you have two different people saying, hey, we'll follow you. And Jesus is like, um, will you really? And we begin to hit something here about our understanding of following Jesus that is very much like Jesus is in the kids' storybook again. Jesus is battling Herod, and Herod's a bad guy, and Herod comes in this, and then which side are you going to be on? I'm on Jesus' side. Do you get what I'm saying? That, to us, is following Jesus, oftentimes. Um, this is my team. I'm not going to be on Herod's team, I'm going to be on Jesus' team. And Jesus says, wow, 
Uh, I'm looking for something radically, radically different. Piecing a couple things. I want to bring something in that happened in the first service, but let's turn the page just for a minute first. Now, if you turn the page in the back half of chapter 9, Jesus says in verse 35, this is Matthew 9, 35. It says, uh, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Okay, so um, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So if you get this, Jesus is going around and he's teaching and he's being surrounded by lepers, paralytics, people that are sick with oozing sores or blind and can't see or like he's going around and he's at the same time he's preaching. It's not ivory tower, not cold, not whatever. He's loving these people that have no leader because the normal people in power what do you normally do with power? You leverage it to maximize your own agenda. And these people, these untouchables, um, add no value to your political goals and aims. They count for nothing. And Jesus is so different. He's going through, he's preaching. He's, so, I mean, you got to get the picture. I mean, it's dusty and, it, and it's, it's, it's the ancient Near East and, and there's no microphones, there's no this. And he's got these people around him coming and going and he's touching them and loving them and leading them and he's in control. I mean, he's doing, he's quarterbacking. He's, he's doing what he came to do. And then he says to his disciples, so um, you guys that are following me, wanting to know what is true, wanting to, wanting to know what it should be like, wanting to know how to really lead, wanting to know how to be shepherds, you guys that are following me, you people that think you're religious, okay? Um, this is what I have to say. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So you got all these people following Jesus... And Jesus says, let me show you reality. Um, it's a wheat field. And it's, it's ripe for the heart of it. It's, it's blowing in the wind as far as the eye can see. And, and it's, it's wheat. And it's there. And there's nothing stopping you. It's ripe for the harvest. Do you see what I... Do, do you get it? And he, again, let me show you what I see. And these guys that are following Jesus, what they see is here. It's all right here, and they're caught up in it, and it's the events, and it's the time, and it's, it's running from thing to thing, and it's the latest and the greatest, and it's who's talking to who, and, and, and the, the position, all this other stuff. And Jesus says, we can nitpick things to death. We can do this endlessly. But... <laughs> But you got to understand something. There are opportunities a million. There are, just look out as far as the eye can see, there's opportunities everywhere you look. And the reason that nobody's out there doing work is why. It's yesterday, I had my religious epiphany. And it made sense to me. You want to know why there's nobody out there doing the work? Why it's, 
the, the, the work is plentiful, but the workers are few. You want to know why? I had this epiphany after um, an hour of trying to goad three of our kids to clean the house. And they're nitpicking at each other about whose clothes are, are what on the floor. They're making games out of every article they touch. They're, they're, you know, do one thing and then I'm hungry. And then all of a sudden they have a question for dad. And then all of a sudden, oh, I'm helping with the baby, so I can't. And all of a sudden it dawned on me why there aren't workers out there where there's work aplenty. Because it's work. But it's work. We looked, for, we looked at Jesus for cool stuff. I'm serious. We looked at Jesus for cool stuff. What's, this is the guy, man. This is the head honch. He's the son of God. It's really cool. I, I found the right place. I'm here. I want to see some cool stuff. I want to be a part of some cool stuff. What's going on? Let's talk. Let's, this, let's nitpick. Let's police each other. Let's go. All this other stuff. And the guy who's the king, who's in, in authority, who can who's supposed to have all these people serving him, says, look, you want to see something really funny? Here's what's really funny. None of you are out there. And yet, it's vast. You don't really want to follow me. You just want to be on the winning team. You just want to be where the action's at. You're just wanting to whatever. Go, uh, go and let the dead bury the dead. You, you got a father, and you're gonna, you know, wait a couple years or whatever. To, okay, whatever. That's not what I'm doing. You waiting to retire before you really serve God? You know, let me just let me just finish up this season of whatever, and then I'll I'll really turn it on. Or you know, when I retire, I'll get in the game. And Jesus is saying, like, um, you're not prostrated on the ground. If you really were worshiping me, if you were exalting me, if you really realized I was an authority that, that I'm the king, that means you serve me. If you, if you were there, I would show you this, or you would already naturally see this, and you would immediately be there, even if it's work. Because that's the relationship. That's the dynamic. I was in um, Chicago, and, and there's like 30 pastors, and there's one pastor that I just didn't like. Um, he was just nitpicking everything. I mean, just nitpicking everything. And, and I was supposed to be leading these meetings and stuff like that. And, and there's all these people with a desire to really come together, collaborate, and see what together we can accomplish to help out guys like Marcel who engage the church over in, in these third world countries. And over there, the churches are coming together to try and help like deal with things. And so we're like, man, if we can't come together in America here, this is really weird, right? So we're trying to bring everyone together. And this guy just, you ever seen that? Every time there's some energy that gets going, he just kills it. You know, kills it. So I finally, I don't have a crayon or anything here, but I finally just went to the board and I drew two columns. And I shaded the first one like 90%. And I was like, it's like, we're talking about what we're already doing. And we're nitpicking it to death. Just going round and round to try and like maximize it. Or make it look prettier. Or more efficient. Or, I mean, we're just playing games with it. I said, but there's this other box. This, and I drew it. And I was like, this box is called opportunity. And we're at like 1%. There's, there's a, there's a, 
opportunities so great out there that if we just stopped nitpicking and said, hey, what can we say yes to today, right now? What's your church doing? How can we help? Hey, we've got a Congo City. You want a couple boxes? I bet you could sell them. It would really help out. Hey, what was that idea you had again? Yeah, we got some people in the church that we could get in touch with you that you could, you know. There's like endless opportunities that we could be talking about that, that get things going, that, that get workers out there that are all about possibility harvest, all this other stuff with, with God at the head and we're just serving each other. But our own agendas, like our own programs, our own things, the, the stuff we're doing, we're going to keep trying to nitpick that. Um, the reason that we become legalistic is because we take for ourselves in the position of the kingdom, we take the position of police. You know, Jesus is all about holiness and purity, so I'm going to walk around in his kingdom and find people that aren't holy and aren't, aren't pure, and then I'm going, to, I'm going to wag my finger at them, and that's my role. And I think we, we don't even know the heart of the king. The king's like, man, they're hurting people out there fields ripe for the harvest and you're going to nitpick about things that make you look good or you win or give you control over other people or or are easy you just get to sit back in your chair with your own scepter and kind of judge say what you think and jesus is like I, I i don't want i don't need a police force i really don't i just need workers i, I need people that don't care about work I need people that are willing to work. Just, I mean, nothing rocket science about it, just willing to do what's possible. What's the low-lying fruit? And they just do it. In the first service redux, the guy asked a question about Moses. Now, Moses gets called by God. He's like, ah, I don't know from the guy. Finally, like, God talks him into it. And they're going towards Egypt where Moses is supposed to get Pharaoh to let the people go. And God's about to kill Moses. He hasn't taken seriously, like, what it means to be one of God's people he hasn't circumcised his kids, things like that. Um, we won't go into that. His wife handles it for him and says, man, like being married to you means like I got to do all the work. It's kind of like what she says. And I answered the question, and the first service was like, what's going on there? And I answered the question, the first service was number one, half the guys, including myself that I know, um, the reason we're still in good graces with God is our wives, um, number one. Um, Someone recently said to me, and I agree with it, the, great, the greatest untapped um, resource in, in the world today is women. I honestly believe it. Um, but I said, number one, um, our wives do the same thing Moses' wife do, that did. I mean, they kind of get it. They throw their heart into it. They take it serious. We do like Moses does. And so if I want to contextualize it, it's like this. It's God calls us to do something like Moses did. We'll go just far enough. To say, there you go, God, you got what you want. Are you happy? Are you happy? I'm going to church on Sunday. I'm wearing a tie. I, I give I give some money to the church. You know, I mean, not a lot, just enough to hurt. Um, what more do you want from me? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll join a small, you know, we all good things. But what we're doing is we're really going just far enough to say, okay, I'm doing what you want, God. And God, that's what I said the first time. I was like, I mean, God's like, Boy, I'm, I'm going to slap you. I'm, I'm serious. Like, you think that's what I want? I, I'm taking the time to involve you in something I'm fired up about, I care about, I want you to do something. You better get a little bit fired up too. 
you better take it a little bit more serious with Moses. It's like, you're going to go save my people, the people of God, and you don't even care what people of God means. You're not even willing to lift a finger to, to think that there's an identity there. Boy, like, you, you better start acting. Like, you, you better get, get riled up. Or I'm going to get rid of you and find someone that cares. All these people are following Jesus and they're playing the games. A lot of them playing games. And Jesus, I think, over and over says, look, do you want to know what God's about? Do you want to know what I'm about? It's right there. You just got to want, you got to get fired up and not just make these deals all come so far. You got to put it all in front of you. Forget retirement. Forget your dad. Forget where you live, what car you drive, the addition on your home, the all good things. But those things don't take precedent over saying, God, where do you want me to be? Who do you want me to be with? What do you want me to do? I'm all in. I'm all in. And we go, you know what? Okay, I'll follow God. But if I go all in, he's going to call me to Africa. I don't want to go to Africa. I want a different assignment. Like, you know, can I see a list of assignments, God? Like, what are, what are like the options here? You know, can I barter with you? Maybe like a little bit of this one added with a little bit of this assignment. I'd really enjoy that. That would be a good assignment. And, and Jesus is like, you're just like Herod. Do you want to know what happens when we reign God in? We're reigning God in. Instead of God reigning in our lives, control, sovereignty, he says what goes, and we are along for the ride. Instead of that, we politically, okay, and, and, and emotionally and psychologically are still in control, and we take that guy who's the head, who's the leader, who's the Jesus, who's the Messiah, who's the Christ, who's the King, who should be going and we're following, and we rein him in. We control what God is trying to do. I said it last week, uh, Marcel's great little line, God is like a big freight train. And you either get on board or the train kills you and just keeps right on going. God was about to kill Moses because he, he wasn't quite getting it. Um, it is not about my plans at Antioch. It's not about any of the other pastor's plans at Antioch. Half the cool things I, I mentioned to you, all the cool things I mentioned to you, we had no idea. We never knew Kiln's College was going to happen. We never knew Worldly Connection was going to happen. We never knew that small groups would voluntarily do this with other people. We never knew a coffee manager would do this. We never knew that somebody would hear a message and move his family. We, we don't control those things. And so when, when we in church say, um, be all in. Just take what you've got and bring it and give it to God. We're not saying we're going to count the money and build our pyramids like Herod did and make our name great and solidify our legacy. We're along for the ride too. We're all bought in too. We're, we're seeing what's happening. Because that's what we're using in our generation to hide behind and not do anything. It's like, oh, I don't want to fuel into that egoism. You know, those group of people at church is pastors, which is like the worst name you can be called in America. It's a pastor. Right above like mass murder, right? And, and so we hide behind that. It's a way of making excuses. It's a way of reining in. And instead we say, okay, God, I'm going to church. I'm wearing a tie. I'm, I'm doing enough. And God's saying, all in. Be all in. I am God. Prostrate yourself. Serve me. It's work. But it's the work I have for you. And trust me that I'm going to do something with it. And if this church, 
I mean, last week, half those things happened in one weekend. If this church, if these people went home and said, what do I got? What can I bring? What can I do? What can I start? What ideas do I have? What talents did God give me? What gifts? What do I know? What am I an expert at? How can I network my social capital? How can I, if we all just kind of threw it in the middle, that thing would just blow up, explode. Doesn't care if this church ever grows another person. It's the impact that this group of people has in the name of Christ. It's the kingdom moving out through these people, and all of a sudden it's an area where Christ reigns. Where we're not reigning him in, but where Christ reigns, and we're running around like crazy, sweating because we're working. And people see that and they go, man, finally a church that isn't policing the neighborhood, but is actually working. And is actually loving and is actually engaged and actually cares. I had somebody tell me this week that their mom emailed them and said, said, Antioch doesn't believe in Jesus. You better watch out. You better watch out. That stuff, like Brandon and I decided we're gonna we're gonna take all the rumors and just add them up, and that way each year we can do a top ten list of like the rumor or whatever. But but there's a church out there that 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 their thing is that Antioch doesn't believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus so much that I think you should go home today. You should get with your wife or whatever, and you should put everything you've got on the table and just say, okay, okay, God, we're in. We'll work. Just get us going. Tell us how to get started. We'll, we'll give up. We'll sacrifice. We'll die to ourselves because that's how you're going to be able to reign in our lives. We're going to be worshiping you. You're going to be using us. I had a meeting with some friends this week, and we were trying to find what is the essence of what God's doing at Antioch. Why are, why are cool things happening? <coughs> the tagline was simply this. The mantra was simply this. Give your life away. Are you willing to give your life away? There are people here, saints here, that I'm meeting that are giving their life away. And, and, and some of it doesn't even have anything to do with Antioch. It's nonprofits and it's other ministries. And it's laboring in areas where, where maybe in 20 years you're going to see a little bit of fruit. But they're people, they're saints that are saying, um, I am set apart, God, for your uses, your work. Use me. And they're giving their life away. They're all in. And, and I think we got to just say, like, God is calling each of us, saying, look, you just trust me. It's like Moses. When we can argue with God, ah, what were the benefits of that? Good retirement, you know, I mean, do I get two weeks vacation? What do I get with that package, God? We can do like Moses started out doing until he got his head screwed on and his wife actually got a hold of him. Or we can just say, look, God, you, you tell me. You lead me. I'm holding nothing back. I'm not going to argue with you. I think the words we should say are, okay, God, you reign. You are king. You are Basileos Judeo, the king of the Jews. You are the son of God. You are the one we prostrate ourselves to. You're the one we follow. This Christmas, we celebrate the birth of the King of the Jews. The realities and the implications of that are absolutely astronomical to the degree that it costs you your life. But it's a voluntary cost. You've got to choose to give your life. You want to follow Christ? You want to be with Christ? You want to do what Christ is about doing? You want to go where he's going? something I think even today at the kitchen table on the drive home 
on a mountaintop if you drive yourself up there. It's something today you can grab hold of. But it means that you lay down all claims and authority. Instead of reigning him in, he'll begin to reign in your life. Let's pray. Father, um, help us to believe in Jesus. Let this church be a church that believes so much in Jesus that it doesn't matter what the legalistic people would say about us. It matters what the people on the fringe or the margins would say about us. That Jesus would all of a sudden become uh, more than one half of the cuss word. Jesus would become king. He would become God in the flesh. He would become somebody worthy of worship because of how they see that we're willing to lay down our lives prostrate ourselves to worship that king. Let this be a, a, a church where we don't just worship Jesus Christ in our words or in our songs. Let this be a church where we worship him in our hard work, in our sweat, in our labor, in our toil, not because that's how we earn favor with him. That's just part of what it means to follow part of what it means to be a part of what he's doing in his kingdom. Father, let this be a church where Christ will